Welcome back to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Ineash Brodsky, as always. I'm Stephen Zuber, as I am Monday through Friday. <laughs> and I am Richard J. Acton, as I usually am. At least whenever you're on a podcast. Yes. Welcome back, Richard. I guess, Stephen, you're saying we last had him on three, three or four years ago? It was just before I graduated from my PhD and shortly after I moved to Germany, I think. Was that three years ago then or four? Uh, three, yeah-ish. Three, okay. Time is well, a flat circle. <laughs> I think last time we were speaking about aging, right? We were, yes. Yeah. All about aging. Episode 127. I did an episode of my podcast, the Xenothesis podcast, uh, on longevity and aging and immortality stuff. And there's a bunch of really good notes for follow-up and additional reading materials in the footnote for that. Sorry to like jump off with a plug. <laughs> That's perfect. Can you send us a link and we'll put it in the show notes? Uh, absolutely. But we are not here to talk about aging today. We are here to talk about the Guild of the Rose. <laughs> <laughs> lots of spots, lots of spots. Yes. <laughs> but when I was going over the notes up here, it said that you have joined with the Guild of the Rose recently. Uh, I am, yeah. I have been a member for a little while now. And um, me and David Yusuf are running a podcast, The Oasis of Rest. It's been on a slightly eclectic schedule up to this point. Um, hopefully it will become a bit more regular in the relatively near future. But we've done a couple of episodes of me and him chatting. We're an interesting mix. And then um, a couple of interviews with other founding members of the Guild. Fantastic. The Guild of the Rose, for people who are not familiar, it's an online organization which helps people level up their rationalist skills and provide a bit of an online community for rationalists. We are big fans, and that is why we are partnering with them. Sounds like Richard is a big fan as well, seeing as you are part of the group. Yep, been enjoying it. All right, but the real reason that we're actually here is to talk about the academic publishing, because we had two episodes ago, The Rise and Fall of Peer Review, and you have a lot of things that you've been thinking and writing about that topic for quite a while, and so you contacted me immediately after. You said, yeah, I've, I've got a lot of writing on this. Would you love, like to do a follow-up episode? And we said, fuck yeah, you're Richard Acton. Well, I mean, to be clear, I don't have a lot of uh, published writing as of yet. Um, I have a lot of random notes that I might try and turn into a book at some point. <laughs> These words look like writing to me so it yes. counts in my opinion <laughs> i should probably preface with my opinions on this subject are not those uh, or necessarily reflective of those of my employer i'm speaking mm -hmm. entirely in a personal capacity here are they reflective of the guild of the rose i, I would imagine not <laughs> okay just me purely personal capacity the preface to this is kind of i've been thinking rather a lot about the problems in academic publishing for quite a while um probably the last six or so years since I sort of actually started being along the like professional path towards being in academia. I've been kind of diverting a little bit away from the primary path that one normally pursues in an academic career. I've been working more as a bioinformatician and now my job title is data outputs manager. So I'm doing some sort of slightly parallel stuff to a, a conventional academic career at this point, largely because of the problems I perceive in the way academic publishing works and i think i can do more about it in my current position than i can as a uh, as an ordinary researcher what, so. what are these problems that you've seen that have turned you off from it so much <laughs> well academic publishing has problems at probably every level of analysis from the economics to how articles are formatted it's from abstract problems to really mundane problems everything imaginable is <laughs> has serious issues <laughs> I should preface that I am actually quite optimistic about the future of academic publishing. I'm going to come off as very much not initially, um, but I have some mm. suggestions 
how we might make things better. And a lot of people are working on things that uh, could well make things better in the relatively near term. I'm admittedly rather frustrated at the pace of change, which is glacial, but I'm, we're beginning to see some some movement, I think. I really love to hear that kind of thing because it's all well and good to point out how everything is falling apart and bad, but like having some kind of suggestions and plans and optimism it's it's what I need. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not um, as they say, not writing a chapter eleven book where you spend ten chapters saying everything is shit, and then write one chapter at the end where you say vote harder to <laughs> to, to steal a line from Cory Doctorow. <laughs> it is easier to rip things apart than it is to propose better alternatives. So indeed, but let's start by ripping them apart because that's a little bit of fun. Um, of course. Mm. <laughs> And so, important, so people know why it needs to be rebuilt. Indeed, yeah. Uh, we're going to have some motivation. The first thing I want to do is get everyone angry. The academic publishing market is um, particularly perverse, even in a world of very perverse oligopoly markets. Let me give you like a quick overview of kind of the structure here. There's five major publishing companies, Springer Nature, Teller & Francis, Wiley, Sage, Elsevier. They typically make about 40% profit margins. Holy shit. Yeah. It's a very big money business. Um, unfortunately, it's it's mostly taxpayers' money, but it's a big money business. As is typical of these sort of choke point oligopoly systems, they're both a monopoly, effectively, and a monopsony, which is to say they are the only place where you can sell your services as well as the only place where you can buy things. If you want to publish, you have to publish via them. Just like if you want to sell stuff these days, you basically have to sell it via Amazon. That's the monopsony bit. And then they're a monopoly and that they're the only people where you can, you know, get publishing services from effectively if you uh, want to prestige publications. Can people go to the internet, like archive and personal blogs and such? Uh, yes. That's only if you want to see things. The monopsony bit's kind of more important than the monopoly bit, right? The ability to get stuff from them is somewhat been torn down by things like Sci-Hub and the open access movement, where you can get papers a bit more readily, but you still can't publish them anywhere else very readily if you want to progress in your career as an academic. Um, oh, yes. Yeah, yeah right. careers are pretty important for people who want to food and rent money. <laughs> this mean, was yeah, the trade-off we the talked about with uh, Adam was... Uh, that sure you can publish on your blog but you don't get the prestige in your in your field it's a collective action problem right it's a multipolar trap so everyone thinks in order to progress your career you need to publish in high impact journals um, and everyone evaluates everyone else on the criteria of publishing in high impact journals and everyone assumes that everyone is doing that uh, but if you defect from this little like prisoner's dilemma, then you get the equivalent of, from a career perspective, being taken out and shot by the Stasi, right? You just, you disappear, right? It, it's that same collective action problem that you face. And I assume this is because universities, if they hire a researcher that doesn't have these sorts of credentials, I don't know, they, they risk losing their funding or something? I mean, maybe um, to some degree, but most of the time it's more in the kind of like uh, the grant decision making type processes. There's a lot of different points in this. So there's, there's the universities getting their funding, but there's individual researchers getting funding that portions of which then go to pay fees for the university along with tuition. And it's a relatively complicated sort of economic system with the way that money is shoveled around inside academic institutions. So like as an individual researcher, you get a grant and then you pay facilities fees at the university and that contributes 
to the prestige of the university and you have like, all this money that you can spend to pay for students and so on. You need to be able to attract high prestige researchers to have high prestige institutions. Everyone's kind of locked into this way of thinking. But it is very much a problem of the way that we think about it. Because the particularly perverse thing about the academic market is we're kind of all the players in that market. We're the suppliers of the material that goes on in academic publishing. We write the articles. We are the provider of the bulk of the labor that's involved in publishing academic articles. That's peer review. And we're the purchasers of the output, which is we consume the articles. We have our university libraries that pay fees to get access to journals in order to see closed articles. Wow. So it's all our fault. <laughs> well, and, and I think from the outside, I've never been really involved in academia. If I'm a, an organization that wants to fund research, I don't have to strongly vet the the PhD department at Stanford if they want grant money. I can kind of just assume that Stanford's done some other work for me. Whereas if like somebody with a cool blog says, hey, I do a lot of cool stuff. Can I have $50,000 to get me through the year while I do some research? I might spend some time and resources checking to see if they're just going to steal my money, right? I think yeah. uh, like independent uh, researchers, um, that was like a thing before science was a real job. That was all science mm -hmm. was, was independent research. I mean, now I think it's kind of coming back. It is a signaling problem, right? You, you do need to be able to send like a reliable signal that you are good at this, you know what you're doing. We have kind of a credentialing system of being associated with these universities, research institutes, and having published highly in order to serve as that costly signaling function. But the problem is a lot of the cost of the signal is orthogonal to the quality of the science. Right. Oh, of course. <laughs> so you, you end up paying a huge amount of extra costs. Um, and it's also, it's gameable, right? It's not a very good signal. Just like getting a, a degree or, or really any sort yeah. of certification. It seems like the villain, like in half these movies, is the certification process. <laughs> and, it, it and does we, I don't know. <laughs> it's certainly much, much easier for someone just to be like, I have $100 million and this guy is certified so I can give him money. But since that just doesn't work anymore, I feel like the person with $100 million really needs to spend some money on hiring someone to research who they should give money to. Yeah, the sort of getting a new set of signals is a, a tricky problem. Um, and I'm not sure I quite have a the best solution to that. I, I just have the uh, I have a lot of uh, problems with the way that the current system generates those signals. And I think that we can bring up a parallel system that will have its own indicators. I'm not sure what those are going to be yet exactly. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I, I'm anticipating that they will become replaced with kind of a different reputation system, which is more closely mapped to the quality of your work um, than it is to sort of arbitrary and fairly corrupt sort of institutional prestige things. But going back a little bit more on the way that the academic publishing kind of currently works or has worked historically, the previous business model, the primary one, was kind of subscriptions where you paid in order to get access to the papers. The increasingly common one now is uh, open access journals where you effectively pay to publish in the journals. The only sort of value add that the journals have in addition to the prestige, I suppose you might say, is they host a PDF on the website. They do a little bit of copy editing if you're lucky. And they do some kind of admin for organizing the review process, maybe a little bit of curation. But even the curation has systematic biases, right? There's a lot of problems associated with the way that they do the curation, file drawer effect, publication bias, low-level informal corruption of, you know, you happen to know these editors. The value proposition for journals based on the amount of profit they make is just insane. 
what is the file drawer effect? Uh, so that's where you uh, you leave your uh, results that you can't publish because they're negative, for example, in your oh. file drawer. Something like 90-some-odd percent of results that are reported in abstracts are statistically significant, which is obviously impossible. Yeah. <laughs> There's a big publication bias in, in favor of publishing stuff that turned out to be significant and a bunch of stuff that just wasn't and never got published. Now we don't know what didn't work, so we waste a lot of time doing it again. The file drawer is the graveyard where null research goes to just rot. Oh yeah, we looked into this, but we didn't find anything. Well, we're not going to publish nothing, so we're not going to take up precious page space well, saying you didn't find something. So uh, It's not necessarily that we didn't find anything. You may actually have a, a null finding or a finding that goes against the consensus, uh, which means that it would be challenging to get it published. Oh, that's even sometimes. worse than I had previously imagined or understood the problem because you think you, know, you think a, a challenging finding in our romantic rosy view idea of what science is that's the kind of thing that would get the front page right well i mean it's the kind of thing that like you can publish that if you've got really good evidence for it but you might not be able to get away with publishing something that goes against the consensus of kind of your local field if it's just a relatively minor result because um well all the people who are reviewing it will be like oh this goes against the consensus of the field you've got to do something you know more stringent to show it and you may not have the uh, the time or the resources to do something more stringent to show it, but you can't publish it in order to persuade people to give you the time and resources to <laughs> check it out. So you, you see the feedback problem. It's <laughs> yeah, it just seems like people- you could solve this partially by just putting on there like this is weak evidence, but we should look into this more. But that, that's just I, I get that's how blogs that's work. That's not how scientific I'll- journals work. Uh, no, no, that that's most of how scientific journals work. <laughs> oh wait, did I say that backwards? Or can you repeat that? Sorry. As it, most of how scientific journals work is not we have strong evidence for this. It's uh, we've found a little bit of evidence for this, and we think it's probably right. Like the ah. some stuff is actually really robust, but a lot I of meant, stuff is. This is the hypothesis. And that makes sense. What I meant to say was that uh, if you if you have contrary evidence contrary to popular understanding, and if it's weak evidence, that doesn't get published. It often gets file drawered. If people who had file drawer reports had some place just to throw them online, some giant shared Google Doc drive or something, do you think they would do that? Or is it actually not worth even putting online if you don't get some sort of journalistic cred for it? It would probably help, but the incentives to do it are low. You know, there's a little bit of friction associated with publishing it and you might get backlash. It's just you can put it out there, but you've got to then kind of get it into the format for a paper and go through the process of trying to get something published, which takes a really long time, even if you're not necessarily going for the highest tier journals, right? It's a lot of effort in the process of publishing a full on scientific article, which is one of the critiques I have of the way we publish at the moment is actually like the unit of publication is too big. The way we currently write papers is it's too large. I think we need to break it up into smaller chunks, but uh, we haven't sort of quite finished with the publishers. I mentioned that they have, there was the subscription model where you paid to get access to the journals. And there's the open access model where you pay charges in order to, to publish stuff. What do you reckon the price is to publish a scientific article on average in a moderately good journal? Good God. Thousand dollars? I would like to think it's nothing because the scientific journal would be funded, <laughs> you know, by the people paying to read it. It's pay to access and it's the shit journals that charge you to pay them. The publication rags that just will, you know, give us a hundred bucks, we'll publish a paper and you can say it's quote unquote published. So disenchant well, me. <laughs> so yeah, that, and that has been kind of a critique of the push towards open access is that a lot of the sort of high tier journals have been forced into having a certain amount of open access articles by policy from research funders and so on. They said like, you know, oh. you have to publish stuff 
in an open access format. So instead of being able to extract journal publishing fees from, from university libraries and other institutions, they now charge the article processing charges instead. That's how they've kind of swapped it around. They're still getting paid, but uh, for a different thing. Do they charge that for all articles or just for the one or two open access ones per issue? For the most part, they don't get away with charging you a publication fee if they're also going to pay all the article. Some okay. have tried. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> yeah, Everyone yeah, tries double to double dip. dip. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Paying so, for a streaming um, service with commercials. In, indeed. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's that, that same deal. Um, and there's some other analogies there. Uh, so the, the article processing fee to publish an article in Cell, a pretty high-profile journal, this is the most expensive one on Elsevier's list, is $10,100 US before Jesus. tax. Wow. Wait, you pay taxes on your publication fee? It says before tax on their spreadsheet. I didn't look into what tax that might be relevant for, but it <laughs> lists the prices as before tax. So Wow. <laughs> and the median across their 2,619 journals is 2,990 uh, US oh, wow. dollars. If I'm doing standard run-of-the-mill, whatever, science, I sound smart. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I've got a paper to publish. Hey, look, I found that uh, the hype about plastic water bottles turns out to not be that big of a deal. I, I'm a grad student at Stanford. I want to get this published. Mm-hmm. Does that two grand come out of my pocket or does that come out of the grant money that I got to do the research too? And I see that's where it gets interesting. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But the way it used to work when we were paying publishing fees to the journals, the journals, instead of letting you pay subscriptions to individual publications, bundle them together like cable. They give you all of the shitty channels along with the ones that you actually want. So you have to pay (laughs) for all of them. And on top of that, they have NDAs with all of the university libraries. So they can't tell one another how much they're paying. What the hell? Yeah. It's on us too. We've not been paying adequate attention to the fact that this is going on. Actually, that sort of helps to mask the problem, right? Because academics for the most part aren't paying those fees directly. So they, the universities have sort of switched to an arrangement where they used to be paying like a bundle to be out allowed to get access to the journals. They're now paying a bundle to be allowed to publish in the journals. So they've just sort of changed the framing and kept billing them the same amount pretty much with a slightly different way of spinning the story. <laughs> and in all cases, it's always someone else's money. So why do you care? Exactly. Uh, sometimes that does directly come out of your individual funding, like grant funding as a researcher. But I think for the most part, they might actually be uh, happier if it goes via the university libraries, because then you never get to see any of the details and be outraged about it. And then for this, we get a shitty website, a few emails, and maybe some copy editing. Uh. It's fun how all of this is so bad and so gross, and yet wasn't included in uh, Adam uh, Mastriotti's write-up of the problems of peer review. Well, because I guess that was specifically peer review. That That's wasn't peer publishing. review specifically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now that I say it out loud. The publishing context more generally. Like, this is relatively widely known within academia, um, just, and yet we still haven't managed to do anything about it, solving the collective action problem around it. We've been forking over our copyright to these guys, peer reviewing for them for free, and then paying them to look at our own work for decades um, and have not figured out how to do anything better about it. I, mean, I think the problem is that academic labor in in many ways is uh, what's the phrase for it we have um something that's been dubbed vocational awe we we tend to view our work as like a calling it's a thing that we do anyway uh, even if we weren't Mm. paid and we're kind of like nose down focused on what can i do to do the work 
and we don't pay enough attention to the broader mess or have the the remaining energy to deal with it. <laughs> right. The fact that anyone's willing to pay you anything at all is kind of a nice bonus. Yeah. Yeah. So it means that academic labor is fairly heavily exploited, um, but and we tend to have a slightly better time of it than most other exploited laborers because we're subsidized by the taxpayer. Um, yeah. So <laughs> it's always nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not so nice for the taxpayer, but I guess we get something out of it. Yeah. So, I mean, in order for us to have like marginally better lives while not solving this collective action problem, we give billions to the publishing industry for no readily apparent reason. Well, now, now that I've got us a little bit angry, um, <laughs> a little, <laughs> let's talk about peer review. <laughs> Some of us are just depressed now. Yeah. Where's no, my liquor? I, I, I looked up that article publishing charge thing this morning and had an aneurysm. I knew it was bad, but like 10 grand. <laughs> Fuck me. So peer review. I agree a lot with what Adam said two episodes ago, was it? There's one kind of minor point of disagreement I have on the sort of science is a strong link problem framing. This is, I think, one of those sort of there are two kinds of people in the world, those who think that there are two kinds of people in the world and those who do not type <laughs> problems, right? It's a uh, like it, it's a slightly oversimplified framing of the situation. In the long run, uh, he's right. In retrospect, it's a strongling problem. And paradigm shifting science is a strongling problem. Uh, but more ordinary science is somewhat less so in, in the Thomas Kuhn sense of ordinary science. Science that you do day to day, while you're still operating within a paradigm, needs to have a sort of certain minimum level of trust in what your colleagues are doing in order to be productive, right? Because if I'm working on one particular aspect of a problem, I need to have a reasonable degree of confidence that a lot of the facts that are kind of peripheral to what I'm doing are at least somewhat reliable, or I'm just like, I have to redo everything from scratch all the time, right? You need a certain amount of trust in what you're doing, which means you need to, to some degree, bring up, if not the floor, the average you want to create sort of a, a pit of success, right? If you're, if you're a working scientist, you, you can fall into the pit and still produce reasonable work. If you have a system that is set up as a, a pinnacle of success, then it takes a heroic effort to achieve like the baseline level of quality, um, which is kind of where we are now. And that's, that's not good, right? If you expect baseline quality for heroic effort, then you will not get baseline quality on a frequent basis. But a pit of success makes it sound like you can just show up at your job, do science, collect a paycheck. Is that Those outputs should still be valuable. All right. And right now we have the situation where the outputs are not valuable. Um, yeah, mostly because you can kind of, uh, it's that signaling problem again, right? You can sort of fake a good signal. You can show up and actually work relatively hard on career focused stuff that will get you rewarded in the academic ladder climbing type ex exercise and not necessarily output really good quality work. You'll output work and it will get published in high prestige journals, but it might not actually be that useful or interesting or relevant to the problems that we should be addressing. Right? It doesn't, it doesn't um, adequately incentivize prioritizing stuff. And it also is not typically very open or transparent in its processes. So it's difficult to critique effectively because you can't sort of say, show me the code and have someone actually show you the code. It's not systematically expected that you're going to be you know, called on this kind of thing. It sounds like the problem is bad incentives combined with lack of transparency. Um, yeah, to some degree. Partially, the incentives are also our fault because we decide what they are. Right? We award grant money. We, we do reviews on grants. So we're deciding who gets paid. Uh, and we do hiring. So we're deciding who gets hired. So when you, like, say, the incentives when you say we... Are, Okay, when yeah, you so say not, we, not do you mean like the Guild uh, of Rose or like, yeah, who is so, the we? So, I, I, yeah, I'm doing the typical thing, academic thing of using the royal we, um, which is okay. a, uh, like 
faculty. I'm junior. Um, uh, like people who have permanent academic jobs and people who are sort of slightly higher up the ladder than me make grant award decisions. To dig I, into know, that I'm, a little hmm. bit more, I was because I was, was going to ask the same question. Like, where does that money come from? I'm assuming some of it is from taxes. Who who is signing off on grant money? But also, where where whose account does that check come out of? The major institutions, at least in the UK, that fund this are the UK research councils. Right? The research councils, they've been going through a unification, but there used to be several different ones. You had the Medical Research Council, the Biological Research Council, and so on. So the research councils are the ones that are largely responsible for giving out taxpayer-type money. But then you have other large philanthropic-type organizations. So the Wellcome Trust is a big funder of, of research. Uh, you've got charitable organizations like Cancer Research UK who have specialist interests in types of research. So you get lots of different places will provide grant funding, but the bulk is going to be the UKRI. And in the US, it's kind of a, a similar arrangement. You've got the NIH, National Institutes of Health, who do a lot of biology um, research funding, less familiar with stuff outside biosciences. Okay. I got a, I don't know, personal slash direct question. Yeah. You are a member of faculty, junior member, but... Uh, if so you, I'm, I'm like I said, I'm a, I'm a research data outputs manager in my current uh, job title. Uh, so I, I work for a large research consortium, basically helping researchers to wrangle their data outputs. Could you possibly in the future rise to a level where you are directing money? In my current career trajectory, probably not, unless I go back in the direction of doing postdoc type research. Um, so I'm kind of more in like a managerial or sort of core staff direction at the moment, which I chose deliberately because I wasn't particularly fond of the postdoc route at this point. It's uh, looking less appealing um, these days. Ah, okay. In that case, I'm not sure my question <laughs> would apply. I, I was going to ask like if you personally would direct money to someone without a uh, even a college degree if they looked promising and were putting good, interesting research up on the web. I mean, uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, this is one of those problems where we, we, I mean, we're putting a lot of weight in the credentials um, and we're putting a lot of weight in sort of very poorly conceived of metrics uh, for these right. things. So like I, I would definitely, well, I mean, the, the thing that I would be more focused, I think, on trying to get people to do is like good open science practices. If people are doing good open science practices or are willing to agree to do good open science practices in order to be funded, then that's the that's kind of my pet peeve. It's getting people to do things openly and reproducibly, which I think solves part of our reproducibility problem down the line. Well, and even if you were in the role of granting money, I'm sure at some point somebody like it's not just one person. Somebody's reviewing these decisions, and if oh yeah, if the rest yeah. of the board or whatever didn't like that you were awarding money to a smart and non-credentialed blogger or something. Then they would they That's, would call you out on yeah. it, but you need the you know, consensus from the peer reviewers who are going to be on the the grant panel. This is one of the things I like most about Scott Alexander's grant process is that he can personally direct a decent amount of money, and so he's just like this person over here has no credentials, but they look like they're doing good work, and here's you know a few tens of thousands of dollars, which yeah. is really awesome. And it doesn't sound like you can do that with a university because it has to go through all this bureaucratic crap. Grant awarding committees are incredibly conservative in terms of the sorts of research that they're likely to fund. They will fund stuff that they think can yield good results in terms of things that you can publish. Uh, and part of that makes a lot of sense from their perspective, you know, because they're getting they're getting their money from somewhere, and if they can't show their money suppliers <laughs> the fruits of their investment, then mm -hmm. yeah, we, we paid a lot of people that looks like they were doing a lot of cool stuff. We've got nothing to show for it. That looks great 
if you're just trying to figure things out, you know, like I, I, I'm not saying Mary has nothing to show for their work, but you know, Mary didn't get funding through academia. They got it mm-hmm. through. Well, I guess they're also they're a, they're a business and a charity, but that's not the way to get around this. It's like, look, just give us money. We're yeah, doing a project yeah, yeah. that you're on board I mean, with, you know, that that sort of stuff. I'm a big advocate for increased diversity in funding models for research. We've got kind of everything concentrated in this grant model with very relatively low proportion of funding in more high risk funding ventures, just like there's kind of a notion of like venture research where you kind of have someone who you think is up to something interesting, you give them a hundred thousand dollars worth of funding and let them do with it what they please. You've got Adam uh, had uh, his uh, suggestion. What did he call it again? Um, trust windfalls. There's the prize model where, you know, you have um, some problem that you want people to try and solve and compete to win a prize for. Uh, oh yeah. I'm a big fan of those. Whole, the downside is yeah, like you need money to pay to for your, that, your attempt, yeah. but isn't that cool? You know, Hey, mm-hmm. whoever can, whoever can build this thing, you guys get a million dollars. That's a pretty cool investment. And then there's also rather, just like, yeah, paying staff scientists where you give people a job and a certain amount of funding on their core resources and just let them do stuff, which works surprisingly well, given that it's like relatively, you'd think that a competitive grant model where you had to constantly write grants and justify what you're doing would yield better results than just like giving people money and letting them do what they want. <laughs> but <laughs> at least doesn't. I would attempt to justify, but it doesn't really. I think I, I, I need to try and find a study to cite this, but I think someone looked at a, con- a comparison of competitive grant funding models versus a Swiss funding model where they basically just give people money to do research. And they got kind of a similar quality set of outcomes. But the thing is you get slightly different types of outcome, right? So uh, grant funded stuff will give you things that you can complete in a nice discrete three-year project. <laughs> whereas stuff where you just give people a salary and let them do things they might do experiments in the background that'll take them decades to run they, you know, they might not be very expensive to keep running but they need to be run for a really long time in order to show you anything interesting and have like you know low cost occasional follow-ups but you can't do that on a like a three-year grant funding cycle because there are different types of question that need to be asked you need different types of funding model that suit the types of question and at the moment, everything ends up being like this really one way of doing things approach. I hate to ask this, but it almost feels like science funding worked better when we had a nobility class with people who just had too much time and too much money. <laughs> and we're like, well, I don't know. Let's give this money to this uh, to this Kepler guy. He seems like he's looking at stars. That's interesting. And I mean, and, uh, I wouldn't say it necessarily worked I mean, like, there are other problems with that arrangement. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I understand. We don't yeah. want a noble class to have all this power and money necessarily, but I don't know. It the whole the uh, that, whole bureaucratic the, extreme um, risk aversion and yeah, I mean, that, choking you, the you, life you, out of everything. You need systems that are willing to approach it in a different way, right? That you need the the trust windfalls. You need the the venture research that, that Don Donald Bra- Braben, I think. Um, there's a good episode of uh, one of the podcasts I, I linked in the show notes where he talks about this this venture research program that he worked for. I think it was actually it was funded by um, uh, one of the big oil companies. Oddly enough, they just sort of gave him a bunch of money and said, "You can go give this to researchers." And he went and oh, that's like, awesome. just went to scientific conferences and spoke with people, and then was like, "Okay, yeah, this guy seems like he's got a good idea. Have a hundred thousand dollars." Yeah, that's the kind of thing we want. I don't remember where I saw this, but now that you mentioned it, I recall seeing someone propose that some fraction of the national research budget should just be sent over to a lottery. You get all the proposals, you do a quick pass to make sure they're not outright scams. Mm-hmm. And of everyone who passes the absolute minimum bar of this is not a scam, you just put them in a lottery and randomly give a whole chunk of money to a few of them. 
Yeah. I mean, at the moment, it is kind of like that, but with a lot more work. <laughs> because yes, you have to with sort a of, lot of bullshit on top. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so there's usually like a lot more people applying for any given piece of funding than are going to get it. So the ability to to get funded is kind of a, you know, you've got to put in a bunch of applications and you've got to like balance the number you can put in with the quality of those that you can write up. And then you've got to try and juggle that against actually doing research that you can get published and retain in your job. And, it, and currently it also feels like there's a lot of politics and there's a lot of credentialism involved in that. So it's not a straight lottery. It's uh, stochastic, but shitty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, you might have the best grant proposals and the things that end up deciding that may be non-random in uh, biased ways rather than random in lottery ways. So the lottery would be better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we were talking about peer review, I think. Yes. Yeah, so I thought we, I was kind of starting out with my slight disagreement there about the way that's framed and how to sort of bring that up. So the beginning is sort of fixing things in that regard is I agree also that pre-publication peer review is a terrible idea. I would not mourn were that to die a death tomorrow and we just published preprints. But I think that the system that we should replace pre-publication peer review with is open, interactive, and, and ongoing review that works somewhat differently. The sort of inspiration that I draw for how I think we should do review is very much from the way that open source software development works. If you're contributing to a piece of open source software, you give a proposal to do some work to that project, you get the kind of buy-in from the people who are running that project, um, and that kind of be the funding stage. And then you go away and you do some of the work and you, you, know, you contribute that code in and then you get reviewed, right? So you've, you've opened a merge request to try and get your code into the project. And then the people who are running the project will sort of read over your suggestions and they'll give you, you know, we need to change this and, and that and you tweak these things and you get it merged in. But it's an, it's an interactive back and forth process, right? The way peer review works now is as though it's the 1700s. So we're writing one another letters like via an mm -hmm. intermediary who is the editor at the journal, which is just like, okay, we've, we've sped it up because we're using email, but it might as well be postal in the formatting. It's not like a comment thread where you can open a thing, go back and forth, quickly resolve misunderstandings, close an issue. It's like, this is a Word document with a list of things that I think are wrong with your paper. And you have to write down your replies to those things and try and reference them by like the line number that you've written in the PDF. Oh, and it, like the actual workflow is just terrible for trying to do the review process and no one has fixed it. It's god awful. The workflow of doing Git, even with the overhead of learning Git, is better. <laughs> <laughs> than the workflow of of trying to do it like this way and, and there's, there's so much sort of like small details in things like formatting and, and like keeping track of which line number means which thing and which version and it, there's no automation around this stuff in a lot of the way that we work it's still just kind of emailing paper is version just three final 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 and it's not is that just the inertia of tradition like why don't they switch to even freaking google docs okay so people do collaborate on Google Docs when they're writing papers with their collaborators, because like, yeah. obviously that makes sense, right? <laughs> you, yeah, but uh, for the pre-review process. But for the review process, normally you have to kind of uh, submit it through some arcane website that they have where you uh, upload the paper. And um, it, this varies quite a bit. Sometimes you can just get away with like sending them a PDF. Other times you have to like, you know, copy and paste things into some web form or other. And then you have this whole rigmarole of sending messages backwards and forth in email between you and the editor and the reviewers, because you don't talk to the reviewers directly. You talk to the editor who talks to the reviewer for you. And then the reviewers talk to the editor and you, yeah. Uh, 
why terrible it's a workflow that is that that makes very little sense uh, so like having the the process be streamlined so that you can do the review process in the same way that you would collaborate with your colleagues except that there's more stringent documentation of that process hence the comparison with open source right and open source everyone's using get the version management tool for software right which means there's a log right there's a, there's a recorded history of kind of like the the interactions that people have made and, and who edited what and who said things about what at which time you've got the comment threads on on something like github or gitlab which aren't in the git repository but you know it's a slightly more formally structured version where you have a, a more rigorous history of the document than you would if you were just using like track changes in word or the history in google docs so it, it works better for kind of a more formal process like peer review so using using a set of tools like that would make a lot more sense for the peer review process than than using email chains that we currently use. Has no one moved to this? One or two have attempted to do so, but a lot of it is kind of a cultural inertia. So for example, I say the, the Journal of Open Source Software actually does its reviews on GitHub. Um, Excellent. Which, yeah, progress. Um, and then there are other journals that have kind of tried to do innovative stuff with interactive reviews, but the tooling around that's still a bit mixed there's a lot of different results around it but i think that, that part of the reason is there's not necessarily a really convenient set of tools that offers you the same kind of formality as the review process the ability to document that history of of exchange of comments that exists in a format that researchers are familiar with using right so that's why the so you know, git is a significant like learning curve in order to get fluent enough with it to use it to do like a document review process and the sort of version history is not really adequate in something like Google Docs. So no one sort of built the software, the tooling. Yeah, I might be biased because I'm familiar with Git. Well, I mean, and it was a chore to learn, but I got to think in the in the scheme of becoming an academic, it probably wouldn't be oh, yeah. among the top 10 hardest. Uh, if we taught but it, it, it would be fine. But we yeah, don't. exactly. If they taught it. Don't know it. I wonder, I, I, I'm getting like a PTSD flashbacks to um, writing papers with if you're writing like an English paper, it needed like this kind of formatting for your citations. If you're writing a, a psychology paper, they had their own special way of doing it. And it was just all this, you know, stupid hoop jumping. And it would be nice it, to it, somebody to build a tool where it's like, yes, we're going to do proper version control with that. And it's going to come out in this nice format. Um, that exists, right? Okay. I mean, you, you can do. Um, so, I mean, the way I prefer to write stuff is actually I, I use a tool called Quarto, which is kind of an evolving, evolved version of R Notebooks. Um, I mostly write my analysis code in R, so I use R Studio. And then Quarto is a, uh, a literate pr programming tool. Um, that it's also a single source publishing tool. So I can generate a website, a PDF, and an EPUB at the same time from the same source material without having to like customize the format for those three different outputs. I just edit in Markdown pretty much, sort of a slight superset of Markdown, and then commit those changes. And the CICD thing spits out a built website pdf and epub at the other end right oh, that's that would be the, an ideal way of working right because then yeah. you can you know take in people's uh, merge requests and issues on as part of like the review process i think that's the direction that we're ultimately going to head but i think we need kind of a a reskinning of a gitlab type thing but for people who are focused not on writing code but on writing prose um and make it a bit more usable 
which is, I think, very much achievable as a technical means that would sort of facilitate transition to the and those next generation set of tools and away from the the old way of working if you can get people to to adopt them with a lower learning curve i mean of course the great thing about that as well is it solves a lot of computational reproducibility problems right if i'm working on something that's uh, a literate programming document right so i'm writing my prose in a in a simple markup syntax that you know says these are the subsections these are the cross and cross references and whatever but i've also got the code that draws the graphs and does the statistical analysis as a part of that artifact then the code is part of what i'm publishing right it's there it's in the artifact that i'm publishing because the the publication unit is, ceases to be the pdf that's spat out at the end of the process and it becomes the git repo of course, you can make that better still because you can make the computational environment part of the Git repo with containerization technology. You can use something like Docker. If you've got a Docker file under version control in your Git repo and a tool wrapped around that to build the Docker container and create a reproducible environment for you to do your statistical analysis in with all of the versions of the software that you used baked into it, then you can fully reproduce your workflow. That sounds outstanding. I, I realize we're probably getting a little into the weeds, so but that, yeah, I, I love so that gets you guys lost the, me a few minutes ago. Sorry, yeah. that gets way into the technical weeds, right? So let me let me backtrack a little bit and talk about the try and describe that in in more accessible terms for people who want <laughs> software. Let's, let's start with what you need to reproduce computational research. You need the code, and what and you what need, problem is this solving? Uh, true. Like just to just to reiterate, I know we touched on it, but why why do all this? I, my one sentence understanding is that it makes collaboration in a non-hostile writing environment much more accessible, and running all the code for the to generating generate your statistics and stuff, right? Yeah, it solves awesome. both problems, right? You you have an environment on which you can collaborate on your manuscript and document the history of changes of that manuscript and that's suitable for using in a review process because the like the entire point of something like GitLab is you know you've got a, a project and you're having people contribute changes and collaborating on that and it has to have a very kind of rigid structure because the code has to run right so if you're operating it in a production environment then you, you have to have quite a lot of formality around the, the way in which you make changes to that artifact and you kind of want the same thing for an academic manuscript because it's like it's an important work product so just the history from google docs is not quite good enough for it with git you see who made all of the changes and when and the sort of the branching structure and then you have this whole thing around it of when you when you request to make a change you can you say why you made that change you say what the changes you you made were you've got the history of the changes that you made you can go back and forth and make have discussions about what those changes should be um and you can open issues and say like, i have a problem with the way that you've done this and then you can have a discussion about that and then you can open a change that fixes that issue so that whole like workflow of how people work on code works really well if you use literate programming stuff as the underpinning tooling for writing. And that's, that's really easy to learn, right? Markdown is, you can put Markdown syntax on like a single page. And if you can learn to use the more advanced features of Word, you can learn Markdown in an afternoon. Gets a little bit trickier to learn, but it's not like, not really hard. And so, again, the, the benefit of this, like you said, is is the like opening issues, which is to say, I noticed this part could use some work. I'm going to go ahead and propose a solution or at least just point out the problem. All of that's easily findable. In contrast, exactly. I got an email a few weeks ago about mm -hmm. like a comment or something on a Google Doc I have with Inyash from 
a podcast. The the doc was last opened in 2020. Yeah, and and so, so I got some email about how the comment was either ignored or accepted. I can't remember, but like I have no idea what that was even talking about, and I have no idea how to go about finding out what that was talking about. I mean, to be fair, you could probably still get a random ping on um, GitLab or whatever, but at least when you get that ping for a random old issue, it points you to where the issue was, right? <laughs> and you can see it in the commit history. And so actually, one of the problems that we have in analysis is reproducing our analysis. When we're doing computational analysis, which is increasingly a big part of science, right? The, there's reproducibility issues separately for lab work, but for computational analysis work, it's a whole other problem for reproducibility. You wouldn't think it would be that hard. You're running the same code on the computer. If you've got the code, it should be fine, right? But no, you need the data. So you need to be able to like get the data in the right place so your path to it makes sense, right? You can actually just find it and have the code point to the right place. You need the code, and then you need the computational environment that the code ran in, right? So you need to know what versions of things were there because you're writing some data analysis code, you're using libraries to do things like draw stuff and perform calculations, and those change over time. So if you don't know which version of it you used, you can radically change the output of the result, right? So if you want to reproduce a computational analysis, you need the data, you need the code, and you need the computational environment in which the code ran, and you want to bundle those things all up together and ship those as a research object, as a, as a research compendium that contains all the information necessary to reproduce the analysis of the work. And you can bake that all in to the, to the manuscript, right? You can build the manuscript with all of your statistics and code ran uh, from uh, the analysis code, right? It's a really nice package all in one spot. You linked me when you first contacted me, one of your blog posts about showing our work, mm. which I thought made a wonderful comparison between uh, cooking and recipes and this sort of lab work and computational analysis where in cooking, you didn't want something vague like seven ounces flour. You wanted something more specific like 200 grams plain wheat flour, all purpose 550 very yeah. technical flour yeah, yeah and yeah. you know what the pressure and temperature that your surrounding environment is and all these other things yeah so the analogy is kind of along the lines of you need the recipe like the list of ingredients so that's your mm. your data you need the protocol the like instructions for making the dish that's the code and then you need the environment in which you executed the stuff which is the kitchen so like the the ambient pressure and temperature and that kind of stuff is also relevant how hot your oven was, which make a model your oven was in case it turns out that that has a systematic defect and reads wrong on the temperature, right? So those kind oh, of things, yeah. right? And your Do altitude, that. Inyash, we're at, we're at mile high, water boils at a lower <laughs> temperature here. It yeah, does. Exactly. So that's sort of metadata around the experiment that might affect what's going on. So the context of it. So in the context of cooking, I don't know, that might be the cuisine from which a dish originates and like how it pairs well with wine, right? And, and, and who did the cooking? And, 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 you know, the, that sort of relatively peripheral information can be relevant to fishing apart what might have gone wrong when you come back to it later. You had this interesting thing, lab work protocols, where you gave a bad example is uh, a protocol of gel electrophoresis. Did I pronounce that right? Electrophoresis, yeah. You said that's bad. A good counter would be agarose gel electrophoresis, 0.5% TBE buffer, 120 volts, uh, various other things. Yeah, adequate detail to reproduce the work. Yeah. Do you normally see in a paper a protocol that ju says just gel electrophoresis without all that additional de uh, data? Ah, wow. That, that's um, one of the other sort of pathologies of the publication system is we often have limits on how big a section can be. 
So how much detail you can put into your methods is constrained by how long the methods can be. And also there are sometimes incentives to not be overly specific if you don't want someone else who's competing with you to use the same method that you did. Ah, so you have an incentive to hide as mm-hmm. opposed to make it clear. Sometimes. Well, it, it depends, right? Some people will take a an open attitude to it and publish all the details. And there's a great platform called uh, Protocols.io where people share and collaborate on protocols where you know they figure out how to do some complicated series of experiments and very well document what they did and then they can iterate on it and say you know oh, this didn't work for me i tried this that worked so there are people who are working to improve that but oftentimes protocol level detail is not included in the methods of a paper so one of the things that was um, a very disturbing result recently was the reproducibility project cancer biology where Precisely zero of the 190-some-odd experiments from 50-some-odd papers they attempted to replicate had sufficient detail in the papers to replicate them without contacting the authors. Jeez. They eventually managed to replicate a a decent fraction of them, um, but about a third or so of the authors kind of didn't respond to their communications. And uh, (laughs) But the ones that did were mostly somewhat helpful. But yeah, that's... uh, an indictment of the the degree to which we are requiring people to publish sufficient detail to reproduce their work when we publish it. Yeah. I mean, if you can't reproduce the work, it's fundamental. That's, to kind, of, the way yeah, that's kind of the whole point, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is um, I mean, uh, we, we do kind of a lot of relatively informal replications of one another's work. So a lot of the time, someone who's trying to set up an experimental system to ask a new question will start from an existing experimental system that someone's documented in a paper. So we'll go to the paper, they'll look at it. They might even contact the original author to try and find the details of what's going on. And then they'll replicate kind of a part of their experiment and then they know that they've got the system working the same way so they can go on and do their other work. That's not something that you necessarily publish as a formal replication, but there's a lot of kind of informal replication that goes on. It sounds um, it sounds a lot like publication has lost its purpose. Like its original purpose was like, look at this cool thing I found. Can you guys replicate it and see if this is true about nature too? Oh my God. And now it's more like, I want my credential. The replication is no longer part of the goal at all. It's very much a Goodhart's law type problem, right? You know, it, it, we're optimizing for publishing papers uh, rather than necessarily making the papers useful for the purpose of sharing the science in the paper. It's like publishing the paper. So having better norms around what the content of a paper should be can address that to some significant degree. If you have norms around working openly, so to bring that whole thing back to the sort of peer review process and, and the workflow of publishing, if I'm working on a, an analysis and a paper that I'm preparing in, in a Git repository where I'm tracking the changes of what I'm doing, not only do you have the, the history of the review process, but you have my history before I even published it, right? You see what I did at every step. You've got like the equivalent of the lab notebook and there's, a, there's an open notebook movement among people who are, work in the, the wet lab, as we call it, wet lab, dry lab who will you know, share their, their notebooks, uh, which has the protocol level detail of what they're doing. So that the same thing can be the case for computational people, right? They can share their notebooks by sharing the history of their repositories. And then uh, you do the review process on the repository. So like the, the, effectively, the, the preprint becomes, I set my repo to public, and I've got a web page that has my paper on it. And then you recruit people to do the review process and they comment on the repository that you make some changes. And then you, you know, you issue a, a version 1.0 of the paper where this is the one that's got the review stamp. And then if you need to come along later and fix some stuff or if someone finds a problem, then you can issue a revised version because 
yet another problem with the way we publish at the moment is it's very difficult to revise anything once it's in the record, right? Issuing corrigenda and errata, as we call them, for some historical reason, is a pain in the ass and oftentimes stigmatized and frowned upon. So you make, oh, you made an error in your paper. We need to make that easier for people to correct stuff and incentivize people doing it. If I try and come up with a way of making the sort of the peer review process useful and incentivizing it well, the sort of schema that I've come up with is something I call review bounties. So it's, it's another thing that I stole from the open source software community with bug bounties right, and software development more generally. Instead of paying an article publication for your processing charge, you have a review bounty on your paper. So I've put up my preprint from my Git repo. And, and I recruit someone who's going to be an arbiter of this process. So this would conventionally be someone who is like an editor at a journal. They're going to go find me some reviewers who they think are suitable to, to review this work. They're going to say that the reviewers, you, you'll get paid a chunk of this review bounty. So if, you're, if your review is good, if I like your review, then you get a piece of the review bounty. At the moment, reviewers are not paid, right? They're kind of expected to be part of your, your work as an academic. The person who's being the review arbiter, they also get a cut in addition to their laborers being the arbiter. And then you keep a portion of it left over as a bug bounty. Once the paper's published and reviewed, anyone who finds anything that materially alters the conclusions of that, according to you know some criteria that you agree and some decision criteria for how that can be arbitrated between the authors and the reviewers and the you know the the, the, the arbiter is kind of the person who is the the tie break in case there's disputes. But if, if anyone finds anything wrong with it, they can claim the bounty. So that incentivizes both the reviewers to do a good job and the people to find errors in published literature. And the other thing you can do with that is you can have the review bounty accrue back to the reviewers and the authors over time. So you incentivize people finding bugs quickly and you reward reviewers and authors for having done their job well in that they've not had bugs that are easy to find in their work. That sounds really good. I like. I mean, I imagine the bounty would have to be high enough to uh, motivate people to do this, but I don't know, a few thousand dollars, that's awesome. Yeah, if you take the existing model, right, um, the, the existing kind of levels of article publication fees, it's, it's quite a lot, actually. It's probably yeah. more than is necessary to do that. And the cut that you would need to take as the, the arbiter would be smaller than the cut that the journals take, which is enormous, right? And since your current <laughs> one of the cut things is that, zero, it's, uh, yeah, it's a big exactly. jump no matter how much, you're getting, how much you're getting paid to find something. The reviewer cut goes up, the arbiter cut, which is currently the journal, goes down outright fraud would probably be found much faster than you know these sometimes multi-decade lags we have right now because you could just pick up money that's there and you would be able to i imagine i would trust papers more that had a larger bounty like if i heard there was a twenty thousand dollar bug bounty on this paper i would be more inclined to believe that what it says is more likely to be correct because people have a big incentive to find out the errors so that's the other thing you can do with the bounties that's quite useful is if I am a third party with an interest in whether or not the outcome of this paper is correct, I could add to the bounty pool. Oh, and the yes. same thing for funders, right? Funders at the moment have no mechanism for sort of trying to get the quality of their outputs really assessed, right? Once it's published, it's, it's, it's just published. But if, if I was funding research, I could say like, a minimum of 20% of the publication review bounty has to be allocated to bug bounties, or I could add in bounties uh, at the end of the process if I wanted to. There's a lot of different ways you could configure that. That's the best thing I've been able to come up with to align incentives on this. I imagine some people out there might be able to try and break that. I'd be interested in hearing how people come up with exploits. Hey, I mean, a a bounty for finding a bug with bug bounties would be uh, also (laughs) apropos, right? 
hmm, yeah, I need to I need to come up with a bu- with a bug bounty for my bug bounty <laughs> system. <laughs> well, I mean, so stump up some cash. It's the kind of thing where I, I'm not exactly sure how it would be gameable, but like a, a quick example of several years ago when you submitted apps to the Google App Store, the icon on your phone that you click to open the the app, someone found that you could put a, an enormous picture there that then gets compressed to that, you know, little, you know, one inch by one inch icon. That was when I was caused like the entire phone to, to crash or at least the app to crash. And that's mm-hmm. the kind of thing where Google could just, oh, great. We didn't think of that. They, they do a check, they scale it down, boom, you're good. But that person who figured that out made money. You issue a minor patch and you're done, right? So same thing is like now we have a mechanism for doing corrigenda and errata on papers, right? If it's a, a change that's changing the conclusions, we can bump the, the middle version in semantic uh, versioning. What's it called? I'm losing it in my... Uh, you've got the major version, the minor version, and the patch, right? Is it? Yeah, yeah I forget. Yeah, so the, you bump the minor version, and then um, if it's something that changes the conclusion, you bump the the minor version for typos and stuff. And, right? I, and I threw so a you have an indication of the nature of the changes. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I mean, yeah. Sem- semantic versioning. That's like where when you download an app and it's like version two point one point one or whatever. If it goes two point one point two, it means nothing. You know, you shouldn't notice anything. Small patch. Yeah. But that, that you, maps really well onto this this concept for papers, right? You, you just you, you assign semantic meaning to changing those different versions that are relevant for papers instead of software, and having the the minor version be a change to a conclusion and the patch number being typos and stuff. It tells you when you look at the number on a paper what sorts of things have changed in its history just from mm. looking at it. It has a semantic meaning. Have you tried to popularize this review bounties idea? Have you gotten anywhere with that? If you have, <laughs> uh, I've spoken to people about it. Um, I've at some point entertaining, maybe trying to start a, a company, but if someone else wants to take that and run, then great. I think this is something that kind of wants to be, wants to be integrated into a whole, right? It would be relatively straightforward to do it, right? You could take an existing platform that has a really nice integrated experience for doing this kind of authoring and review process. Something like there's a tool called Renku from the Swiss Data Science Center, which bundles up GitLab, Docker, and um, JupyterHub, which is basically a, an interactive environment for like editing scientific notebooks for doing data analysis and like some other tools for doing more computationally intensive pipelines. And then you can send someone a, a repository, and that's like a completely reproducible version of that research project. Um, but because it's built on top of something like GitLab, it also has the, the publishing feature built in. So uh, you can host a website on a GitLab server. So you know, whenever you edit your paper, it the edits get put through the pipeline and it spits out the nice version of the paper in PDF form or website form at the end. And you can do all of the review process, right? So if you could take that and bolt on a uh, financial arrangement and found a journal that had this sort of as its submission process, right? You submit your projects via a Git repository that will rerun your analysis from scratch and spit out the the paper as a result. And the review process takes place on the platform and the incentives for doing that review are according to the review bounties model. That would work spectacularly well, I think. You'd have to get adoption, which would be a challenge. But yeah, one of the other things that is, I think, really important is that the new ecosystem that replaces the, the sort of oligopolistic structure of academic publishing as it exists now is that it be a sort of decentralized open source federated type structure one of the the things that the arbiters would do 
that kind of replaces the function of journals. It's like we still need somewhere to host our results, right? Hosting is still a thing that we want people to do. So if you had people operating instances of, of a, an open source tool, like something like Renku, that has this kind of workflow running through it for doing the publication, then paying them for hosting it and paying them for the compute and the administration of that for like validating that your pipeline runs on their instance is a, another service that can be provided. The business model, if you wanted to do something like this, would be uh, along the lines of something like Red Hat or SUSE or Nextcloud, one of these big open source uh, tool providers for, for like Linux distributions and um, replacements for, for Office 365, where they have an open source product, but what they offer is either hosted services where you can pay them to do like a cloud version of it or uh, managed services where you pay them for like a support contract and run your own infrastructure yourself. If anyone were interested in actually trying to spin up something like this, should they contact you? Would you be do yes. you have the time and energy to <laughs> to work on this with them? Absolutely. Yeah, if people are interested, I'll leave my uh, contact information <laughs> in the podcast. But yeah, I mean, the reason I'm perfectly willing to kind of you know, come and share these ideas is because I, I don't want to turn this into a proprietary platform where people are trying yeah. to publish stuff. Right. I want it to be like a federated network of instances of multiple different ways of doing this. That has a certain guarantee that it can't be co-opted. Right. So if you're mm. using an open source code base, you're deliberately doing, you're deliberately choosing not to have a moat to use the the Warren Buffett jargon. You don't have a, a way of stopping people from leaving your service. You don't have a, a ring around your business. If you're in the castle and you don't have a moat, you can't be too much of a dick. Because someone will come in and kick you out, right? Yeah, <laughs> this is how the the sort of open source model it makes the uh, the software a common core resource, and it makes the developers of the software a steward of that software, uh, which a steward is of that what infrastructure. we want. Exactly, right? They can't be too unpleasant, or they can't be too bad a steward of that resource, or someone else will come along and replace them. That you can that they fought the project and do their own thing with it, right? So there's a mm -hmm. there's a like a requirement that you can't be too evil as the steward of the platform or someone else will come along and take it out from underneath you. You also can't be too inefficient as the steward of the platform because someone will just come along and operate it more efficiently than you, which leaves you in a, um, a position which doesn't work terribly well for venture capital. <laughs> mm. <laughs> because like that's a business that you can run with low margins on an ongoing and sustainable basis, but it is not a business yeah. that will 100x and make you billions and be thing that you can float but it is something that requires yeah. a significant amount of upfront investment to build so tricky hmm. maybe something i could piggyback on another project that is similar uh, indeed yeah that's, that's kind of why i'd like to you know, start with some existing infrastructure there's a couple yeah. of people out there who kind of tried to do something a bit like this elife uh, who's a, a pretty big journal um with a kind of non-profit focus it tried to have a kind of open source publishing platform that was it was still a bit like the workflow was still very much like a conventional publication workflow. And they were kind of way too ambitious in sort of reinventing the wheel with their whole reproducibility tooling, in my view, of what they tried to do technically, instead of building on the existing open source tooling um, and kind of modifying it for their purposes. A few of the other things that are worth pointing out in the review space, there's there some interesting innovations going on in that area um, with uh, decoupling review from journals. So there's uh, peer community in and review commons where people will review your, I think also peer, peer archive, where people will like review your preprints. Um, but this is a thing that already exists. Yeah. There's, there's oh, existing cool. networks of reviewers who are independent 
of a particular journal who, you know, you post a preprint and you say, well, this review community review this preprint and they say, we re-review this and we approve it. And then um, mm-hmm. some journals have kind of teamed up with them and said, we'll accept the credentials of this reviewer network as being sufficient for publication in our journal. Um- these people are passionate about the subject. They want to read early stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of them kind of want to. They want to read early stuff. They want to provide review, and they want to cut the journals out to some degree from the review process and reduce the gatekeeping that they um, perform. And that's working pretty well. Those networks are growing. Um, there's a lot of people working on these kind of open systems uh, and uh, alternatives to, to peer review in the conventional format. Should um, we boycott all journals that don't accept these sorts of peer review credentials? That would be nice. <laughs> I mean, it would be nice to boycott all. The, I mean, I, I would, uh, yeah, I would, I would not mourn for the loss of of the big five publishing companies because it would it would plunge the ecosystem into chaos, which would yield a new a new set of criteria by which we evaluate the prestige of journals. <laughs> so, oh, so the big five don't accept the these peer groups. Well, some of them might. Um, I, I don't. I, I don't know exactly. I haven't checked sort of which which journals are accepting their reviews, but you know, it's clearly a sort of a threat to, to their model to some degree. It's more of a threat if it catches on for, for people than not bothering to publish in a journal afterwards, because yeah. they can get peer review without the journal. But you know, it's sort of incentivizing people to do the reviewing without the journal is where like the review bounties concept comes in, right? It's just trying to get people to actually focus on doing review work in a way that's remunerated and that you know, you're incentivized to do, because there's not necessarily a lot of incentive to do review work without something else uh, as an impetus. If we've got time, there's another little point I wanted to touch on, which was, I mentioned a while back, like the unit of publication. So there's a few people who are already kind of working on this. There's a, a platform called Octopus, which has a bunch of, well, eight, as you might expect, different publication formats. Um, there's like research equals, there's giga science, and then there's some um, more niche ones. But sort of the conventional way that we do academic publishing is that we've got primary papers and then we have like reviews and then like textbooks. But the primary paper is is a lot of stuff, right? You, you pack a lot of things into a primary paper. And I think they've been growing. I, I need to do some analysis of the historical data on this, but they've been getting longer. I'm pretty sure about that. They've been having more content packed into them, even if it's more compressed, right? So that there's more data and more work underpinning a paper, even if the paper itself hasn't gotten longer. So in order to get into one of the high-profile journals, you're having to do more and more work on a single paper. But this is a problem for a number of reasons. It actually makes it harder to read because you have this kind of condensed thing that just doesn't fit into the format of the paper. Um, and you may have to go and read a bunch of supplementary material to figure out what they did. It means that they're harder to review properly as well, because you've got a whole bunch of different experiments from different domains that need reviewing, right? If I've done like a series of 14 experiments using a whole bunch of fancy new methods to demonstrate this thing, and I'm only being reviewed by three people, then the expertise necessary to cover all of the things that need reviewing in depth is just not present in the review process. So you have this kind of dilution of review, this sort of like uh, um, diffusion of responsibility over the reviewers to adequately review the content of the paper. And of course, you're asking reviewers to you know, take the time out of their day to review these these massive complicated papers, which they don't have a lot of time to do. Right? They're juggling this against all the other priorities they have as an academic. So we have these right. like enormous papers that are a nightmare to read and can't be reviewed properly, in my opinion. So I think we should break them up into smaller chunks. I think we should basically publish continuously in small chunks as we go and have more 
tiers, right? So we should have data publications. That's not an original idea. There's lots of concepts of data publications. I mentioned earlier protocols, like protocols are IO. They can be a separate unit of publication. Methods, you can have methods papers that are just describing how you do a thing that kind of similar to the protocols. Uh, you can have like software publications where you've written a, a library to do a particular kind of analysis. Those are all kind of like smaller chunks of different types of academic output that are not conventionally rewarded as a published output in the current way of doing things, but all of which might contribute to a conventional large paper. Mm -hmm. um, so if we you know, actually split those out into separate units of publication and have people do a more informal review process um, with a more fluid review process like the one we talked about before, on those smaller units of publication, it's, it's less work to do the review. And you can have someone who's actually qualified to do the review look over the content. It sort of splits it up. And it means also credit is allocated better, right? So people who actually did a unit of work get credited for that unit of work, uh, mm. rather than kind of being bundled together in the in one big publication. As terrible as Twitter can often be for many things, I sometimes find really interesting little snippets of someone that's just like, hey, I found this. Isn't this kind of cool? And they throw it up on Twitter. Mm. I mean, we really could use some sort of like science Twitter thing where someone just posts something like that. I mean, taken to its logical extreme, there's a, the concept of a nano publication, which is the smallest unit of publication okay. uh, from which you could compose all other publications if you were representing them kind of more formally, right? You, you, the, the nano publication concept is related to the like the linked data people. Um, so uh, there was a concept proposed maybe late 90s, early 2000s by Tim Berners-Lee, where you, you have a, the next version of the web is where everything is linked. And you have mm -hmm. a, a resource description framework graph where all of knowledge is represented in this giant graph. Um, so like the nano publication is like a single RDF triple in that um, data schema, right? So it's a subject, predicate, object structure. And then you can compose all of the other assertions from there on upwards in a machine-readable format. But obviously that's challenging to publish manually as a researcher but a single assertion is basically all the contents of one of these things with a bunch of like metadata structure around it so every time you make a statement in a paper it could be made into an rdf triple that's a nano publication um, yeah. and that you so say if you had like tooling in the background with some some you know maybe yeah, natural language processing stuff that could convert a natural language sentence into a properly represented RDF graph, then maybe you could come up with a like a fully structured knowledge graph to describe the contents of papers, which would be a lot more machine accessible. The machine accessible part, I don't know, that seems hard because I see a lot yeah. of even blog posts nowadays that have like various links to, to tweets or to other things, pulling them all in. I suppose with a, a decent enough AI, maybe another generation or two, yeah, it, that's definitely a, uh, it's a really hard problem to actually get that be something that people can do usably. Um, but like, that's the like logical extreme version. <laughs> right. That's the ultimate goal. Yeah. I have a problem with the way we write papers on several levels, but one of the things is trying to condense stuff into too small a space. If you want to publish in something like science or, or nature, they have a really short article length. Publishing in somewhere like Cell, actually, it's, it's a lot longer, so you can kind of occupy more space. But the readability of the article is not great because the language is often unnecessarily complicated. There's actually, there, were there have been studies that demonstrate that the complexity of language used in scientific papers has been increasing over time. It's not even necessarily more jargon. It's more like science-specific dialect that is just sort of you know, like science in-group indicators rather than mm. like meaningful jargon. Uh, so that, that makes it worse. But the thing that really bugs me is, is figures. Uh, we do figures terribly. <laughs> Figures in what sense? 
whenever you have a graphic in a paper, okay, let me give it. There's, there's a separate blog post with a whole rant about this if you want to read up, hmm. but I'll, I'll review it in brief. Right. So if I'm reading a paper, um, I'm reading through some text and it says, you know, well, oh, we showed this in figure 5A. So now I go and turn over the pages and I've got figure 5A in front of me. So it's like a whole page of small graphs and there's A is, is on the top left. Okay, great. Now there's a bunch of like acronyms on this graph that I'm not familiar with because it's peripheral to my field or they've made them up specifically for this paper because hmm. people like making up acronyms. So now I've got to go find the acronym in like the other part of the paper, right? I'm now like contorting myself to try and find this other thing because I've got two pages now, right? Because I've got my acronyms. I've got my, okay, this is the context that this figure was spoken about in the text and this is the figure itself, right? Okay, now I need to know what's in the figure legend and that's not even on the same page as the figure for some bizarre reason um, <laughs> because people have weird formatting preferences, especially cell. I'm looking at you, Cell. You always have stuff on the wrong page. Um, <laughs> so now I've got four different places in the paper that I need to have in my working memory at the same time to understand one graph. And, and, and that's yeah, it's too why much. are we doing this? <laughs> right? mm. I'm, I'm already trying to understand a really complicated concept. And now I have to buffer an acronym, the context of the figure, what's on the figure, and the contents of the legend of the figure in my brain well, to try and parse what's going on in the figure. No, <laughs> put the figure in the text after where it was mentioned with the legend relevant to that chunk of the figure next to the figure and give it real titles instead of like 5A. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a hangover from print publication because we used to typeset these things for when we would print them out on physical paper and only the figure pages would be on color glossy paper. You have a whole page of figures in color with the, the glossy printing, and then you have black and white printing for the rest of the paper. So you have to concentrate the figures in one place in order to like, you know, and then have you have this whole lookup problem, which is worse on computers because you are, you're only looking at one portion of a, of a PDF rather than having a printout where you can actually like look at the whole thing in yeah. the same spot. Right? So we have to like adapt to the new medium. <laughs> Breaking up the way we write figures would just improve the readability of papers. Maybe that's just I'm dyslexic, so like working memory is not my <laughs> my strong suit. So maybe this is like just me, but I'm pretty sure it's not. <laughs> it's constantly having to flip back and forth and having your fingers in like three different places. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, unnecessarily complicatedly worded. You got a whole bunch of stuff jammed into one long paper, and it's spread around, or it's super compressed. So you have to sort of go back and forth between the text and the supplementary materials that accompany the work to figure out what they did. Because mixed in with those cross-references to figures are cross-references to supplementary figures and supplementary data. Even just reading one of these things is a nightmare from just like the ability to scan a line because you read through it and it's in the middle of a sentence, figure this, figure that, supplementary figure this, supplementary figure that, reference, reference, then the rest of the sentence. Just like parsing it is not straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> like, could we make this a less pleasant reading experience if we tried? I think I mean, the formatting the, thing too might be not just a pet peeve. Like, I think it's symptomatic of like the underlying, I don't want to say disease, but like, <laughs> oh yes, it's deliberately obtuse and hard to work with because that's what makes our industry so prestigious is that it's, it's actually really hard yeah. to do. And if it was easier, well then, then more people would do it. Yeah, it is, I think, one of those, like, it's arbitrarily hard because the signal's difficulty rather than actually being hard for a good reason. And then the historical stuff, right? The the fact that it's 
because it was formatted that way and because there's massive inertia to change anything in the way that publishing works. Uh, so right. everything's still got to be a PDF and it's still got to be typeset as though it was printed. That's the way we've always done it. <laughs> yeah, which is never a good <laughs> reason to do anything. But it's just gotten so much worse because they've packed so much more information into them. But yeah, that, that's the, I mean, the other thing about that is if you have a separation between the semantic content of the paper and the formatting of the paper, you can choose a representation that you like. Right. Yeah. Apply a different set of CSS to the web page, and it's formatted however you prefer, rather than uh, however the journal preferred it to be formatted. That makes it much more accessible, right? Uh, as well, right? and trying to read a scientific paper with a screen reader is incredibly disorienting. <laughs> do you think this is likely to get picked up? Do we? What do we mm. need to do to make people do these things? My current thinking about the way that you could attempt getting adoption of something like this is. I would be targeting some of the scholarly and learned societies who publish their own journals. There's a lot of proceedings of the National Academy of whatever, or proceedings of the Royal Society of this, that, and the other, in various domains that operate their own journals. You know, they oftentimes will kind of like work out a deal with the big publishing houses to publish their journal for them. They are, you know, a potential like low-hanging fruit for an angle of attack to getting people to adopt a different way of doing things. That and you know, just talking about this and publicizing the possibility of doing it differently. But yeah, get, getting some some institutions who are willing to kind of get on board with this, I think is, is an interesting pitch, right? So if you could build a platform that made this sort of reproducible workflow relatively easy and you know built in the new incentive systems, and you could sort of pitch that to uh, some of these scholarly societies, I think you might get some some bites. But yeah, you need a thing to sell them. Uh, obviously, it might make sense to target a more technical type of journal to start with before you've got all of your polish. So I don't know, some, uh, some scholarly societies that specialize in, in data analysis type work, uh, bioinformaticians, that kind of thing, would be a good place to, to start because they're used to working in, in these kind of, uh, with these kind of tools. That would be my like, pitch for where you start to get adoption. Is there anything that the, the average listener who's not running the Royal Academy of insert subdomain of science can do? You can write to your representatives. <laughs> I'm, I'm moderately serious about that when it comes to whomever it is who has relevant jurisdiction over or influence over in, in the government departments for places that hand out cash, right? Whomever it is that has like political appointee status who is in charge of things like you know, the National Academy of Sciences and those sorts of things, right? Like the, the people who are closer to the metal on those points, but have political positions, talking to them about why are we wasting all this public money in the academic publishing industry? Why are we not uh, having higher and more rigorous standards for the uh, spending of taxpayers' money on research work? Because just a general member of the public, you can, you can ask those kinds of questions. I like that. Uh, That's exactly the kind of thing I could see Andrew Yang. Mm -hmm. I, I could see him arguing about this sort of thing. It's like, hey, you know yeah, how it, you, you know that UBI thing I'm talking a lot about? Here's some money that we're pissing away all the time. We could clean that up. And yeah. I suppose anyone who knows anybody, tangentially or otherwise, who's involved in grant-making decisions, they could yep. have conversations so, with those like, people as well. The, the advice that I would give to anyone in academia is make this stuff a criteria when you're evaluating people. If you want a position to review a paper, ask about the data availability, ask about the protocols, ask about the reproducibility of the work, right? Ask those questions as part of your review process. Don't just say, oh no, you didn't cite this paper that I wrote on the same subject in your introduction. Ask questions that are relevant to good open science practice. 
if you're a grant reviewer, look at people's history of open science practice. Are they actually trying to, to do good open science things in, in their career? Is that something that they've demonstrated an interest in? And prioritize that in your review of these people over their like, conventional publication record. Uh, and that applies both in, in grant review and in, in publication review, right? If, if I'm reviewing a publication uh, or a grant, like those criteria. And, and make that clear to the editors of journals as well, because... If the editors know that you're likely to reject papers for publication, if they don't meet these criteria, then they might start pre-screening papers on those criteria. If you want to you know, encourage people to get the uh, to do good open science practices, even if it's still going through the conventional publication round. So one of the things that we, I think, should do is construct parallel infrastructure, right? Have the process by which you do your like pre-publication work, by which you do your preprints, be something like the process that you would ultimately want to be adopted by the journals, and publish your preprints as reproducible computational artifacts, not just as a PDF on a preprint server, which is at least as bad to read as the as, as the end result that you get from <laughs> from a paper that you published it informally, uh, and it gives people the opportunity to have a, a venue to provide you with feedback informally, uh, and you can use these like existing peer review networks that have been springing up to try and get review on the format of paper that you're now working on. Lots of things that people in the system can do individually to try and push the change in this direction. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been very enlightening. Yeah, awesome. Great. Thanks again. It was, it was uh, very fun to be back. We'd love to have you back again. Absolutely. Great. Fabulous. Bye. Stephen, welcome back. You know, I feel like Richard Acton himself was a good promo for the Guild of the Rose. But Yes, he was. We ought to uh, make sure that people understand that we are affiliated with them because we think they're awesome and we're affiliated with everyone they're affiliated with. And mm-hmm. this was the first time I've heard of that podcast, uh, The Oasis of Rest. They had three episodes in 2022 and nothing since, but they, I think you said that they're going to try and bring it back. So I've got that on my feed of things to look at. So, yeah. And as always, you can find links to the Guild of the Rose in our show notes. Yes. Uh, is there anything we need to hit on before we go into less wrong posts? This actually comes up with something to protect, but I'll probably skim past the, the big part of that, but, uh, or the, the big salient personal part of that. But the, the short version is, is like, you know, all those hippies who've been saying forever, like, man, you just get the one life, you know, make the best of it. Uh, mm-hmm. They're all right. Don't give till it hurts and then give some more because then you're, you know, it's your life too, you know? You are ruining at least one life. And I and I, I know that the math says, you know, you're helping more, but it's like, you got to be happy, you know? Yeah. That's that's my first TED talk of this of this uh, less wrong post section. I have a, I have a one sentence other one coming up. Oh, excellent. Well, uh, I want to hear that one sentence to talk, so let's get into these posts. You're going you're gonna to eat those words. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> All right, one. First one is uh, trust in Bayes. This was a whole lot of math, which I guess was interesting, but not something I particularly want to talk about. Uh, did you have any parts of the math section that you wanted to pull out? No, but remember, we had one equals two after eight levels of proofs or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. We talked about that, and you were pretty, not shaken, but disgruntled that you're, that you're like, you know what? I don't feel clean just saying, fuck it, I know it's wrong, even though I can't yeah. prove it. Th- this is basically saying it's okay to do that in some circumstances. Right. And unfortunately, that's going to be taken as you know licensed by anybody who wants to believe anything in the face of contradictory evidence, but it has a high bar. Yeah. It has the weight of all of math behind it. Right. Algebra is not like the basics of algebra are not wrong. 
Yeah. <laughs> they, they, they actually can't be. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's the the thrust of this post. Not just that algebra can't be wrong, but that, well, as he puts it succinctly, we should take into account our past experience of seeming contradictions, which turned out to be themselves flawed. Uh, which is to say, you know, if, if you've encountered examples of this impossible thing was true, oh, no, I was mistaken. Well, that's actually evidence that you're mistaken this time, too. Mm-hmm. You know, on the one equals two proof. Um, mm-hmm. Back to the quote, based on our inductive faith that we may likely have a similar experience in the future, we look for a flaw in the contrary evidence. This seems like a dangerous way to think, and it is dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, like I said, with with the intellectual caveat that you're, you're doing this with philosophical and, and cognitive rigor and not just doing this to defend your pet theory, I, I think that your inner Bayes fairy will yell at you if you're doing this wrong. I should hope after some level of training. Yes. I love how every less wrong post basically makes me think of the new atheism more just because of the time they're mm. written. Mm. But I don't think evolution or any of that comes up in this, but there was that common rebuttal of like, well, what would disprove evolution? And the, I forget who it was, who was said to have said this, but I remember Dawkins quoting him saying fossilized rabbits in the Precambrian. Honestly, that wouldn't falsify evolution for me. Um, mm-hmm. It would make me think that someone fucked up or is lying. Way yeah. before it made me think that, oh, I guess, well, my whole understanding of the history of the planet Earth is wrong. Right. Um, or not just my understanding, but everyone's, right? It would be an, it would be a big red flag to look into this thing right now. And maybe after a lot more looking, that could start overturning evolution. But it wouldn't do it by itself. Right. If So like with that, you know, eight step proof that one equals two, if this was driving mathematicians insane, mm-hmm. then I'd be like, oh, shit, maybe there's something to this. Yeah. But the fact that <laughs> no one's lost any sleep over it then makes me makes me pretty confident that I have nothing to worry about. Yeah, if the more obsessive mathematicians start literally killing themselves because <laughs> of this thing, <laughs> then I'd be like, "Oh shit, something bad is happening in Mathland." <laughs> uh, so he, uh, I, I read at least one short story like that. That's awesome. Uh, he, that, that's where he goes through all the proofs, and he talks about. Uh, Actually, I forget the guy's name because I didn't pull it out in any of my notes here. But basically, you know, Dutch booking proofs where if you go an infinite number of times, you always lose money or something. Mm-hmm. And he's Yudkowsky says, now, you know, there's a number of replies I could give to this. I won't challenge the possibility of the game, which would be my typical response as an infinite set atheist because I've never actually encountered an infinity. Mm. Uh, I like that answer. It's like, sure, yeah, if you do this, if you do this forever, this happens. Like, yeah, but you know what? I'm never going to do that forever. Right. So I'm kind of just okay saying, sure, right? Like like when we did the little Dutch booking experiment in our Less Wrong meetup where in expectation, I gain like 20 cents per time we do it. And we did it twice and you were like, okay, I'm done. Right. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. I have currently gotten in real life zero cents and I'm hoping we go at least long enough till I get 20 cents once and maybe infinite time. So I take all your money. Well, as it was like, yeah, I don't have infinite time. And as, as it worked out, neither, you know, neither of us lost a dime. So, yeah, he goes, he does do all the math stuff here to show how the, the two different types of infinity were not commensurate, which is why this fell apart. The supposed infinite Dutch booking. But the ultimate point that he's trying to make with this post, uh, he says at the very bottom is that Bayesian probability theory and decision theory are math. The formalisms provably follow from axioms, and the formalisms provably obeys those maxims. Uh, axioms. And I, 
Sorry. Yes. Yeah. You're really close. I, I, <laughs> I, uh, and I think that is that is the major thing that I think he's trying to push with Bayesianism here. And it's interesting because that's not how we, like by we, I mean you and me specifically, use it in our lives. We don't use it as a formal um, mathematical theory. We use it as a sort of guiding principle on how to approach things in our life generally. But he, he's making the point here that when he's talking about Bayesianism, uh, especially in the context of decision theory, he's talking literally about a formal system that has axioms and rules. And just like math, if you apply it correctly and you have valid inputs, then you will always get valid outputs. As far as you can trust math, that is also how far you can trust Bayesianism when it is applied correctly and rigorously, which is a cool thing to point out. Yeah. I mean, it's mathematical theorems, right? Like yeah. there's there's nothing more foundational as far as my understanding of how these things work. So yeah, at the end of the day, he's like, look, man, this this is this is real math. Like mm-hmm. so it, if you can come up with a clever thought experiment where, you know, something stupid happens, well, I don't know. Forget it. I do think it's important for us to not conflate the two because we do call ourselves Bayesians often or Bayesian rationalists. And we like Bayes' theory and <laughs> we draw attention to how it can be it can guide us in the real world but i think it'd be a really good idea to stress maybe once a year at our bayesian church gatherings or whatever the hell we end up doing that we are not doing actual math what we are doing is different from this and we should not try to take the weight and power of math as justification for how we live our lives they're two different things yes maybe one should be called you know bayesian decision theory and one could be called Maybe Bayesianism, which I don't like isms, but if I had to, you know, because I don't think a, a probability theorist would call themselves, you know, would say that they're they're uh, Bayesians, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But that that's that's the, you know the one sentence version of that is is an understanding that I don't when I get in my car and start it to go pick up groceries, I don't know that there's not you know a squirrel hiding in the engine block that's going to be ripped apart when I start the car on, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I'm pr- I'm sure enough that I'm not going to bother checking. It's an understanding that that my mental model of reality is probabilistic, not uh, certain, right? Yes. So yeah, I think yeah. So that's what we're doing. You know, if you're doing a you know decision trees or something, you know, like the teach over at the Guild of the Rose, uh, you're throwing some actual math in there, and yeah. uh, the more refined the technique, the better, the more mileage you can get out of it. But I think just the framework by which you orient yourself towards reality is what we're talking about. Yes. Right on. Shall we go on to the second post, which is much more about the the whole how to live your life thing? Yeah, let's do it. Next post is something to protect. Popular. I love it. He opens it with saying in the just in the gestalt of Japanese fiction, and I put uh, in brackets and Marvel movies, one finds this oft repeated motif. Power comes from having something to protect. Whoa, hey, hold on. I, I must stop you. Because I think that is definitely not true of Marvel movies. He specifically calls out a typical Marvel movie I know. in the post. He says, in Western comics, magic, com- magic comes first, then the purpose. Acquire yes. amazing powers, decide to protect the innocent. In Japanese fiction, often it's the other way around. However, yeah. in Marvel movies, typically, they, they're, they're heroic before they get their powers. You know, you know, Captain America was getting his ass whooped trying to do the right thing before he had the power to not get his ass whooped. I suppose that's true of Captain America. I told you you wouldn't like my second TED talk. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. I, I thank you for for doing that. Yep. Um, I, <laughs> but we can. I mean, we can... having. I guess they are trying to do it more with the DMCU stuff that came around in the you know early aughts mid aughts i don't exactly remember when all that started i think iron happening. man came out in 2008 okay the mid to late aughts then uh the I, I like the distinction that he drew here between japanese fiction and american comics because it does seem like very much in the japanese anime manga style at least of you know that earlier time 80s 2000s it was very much a i am powered by my desperate desire to do a thing like the more you had to do a thing the more power you got uh which has been i guess adopted a bit more in the west but it's it's less like you said it was first you get bit by a spider then you were like oh i have this great power i guess that comes with great responsibility that i got to use and the whole the aspect of desperation that drove the characters and that is how they found the power was a really neat thing about anime that was very cool when it when you were first seeing it coming over yeah, I think for me, it maybe maybe part of the reason I wanted to end this is not the point of the post, but part of the reason that that line didn't resonate with me is I haven't seen enough, I haven't consumed enough of that kind of Japanese fiction. Like mm. the only one that I can think of is Kenshin. Okay, and and Kenshin know, is actually a pretty good example, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, like, but like, yeah, he keeps getting better as his conditions are more dire, and his something to protect, you know, is what actually makes him the best he can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but the. Uh, you know, like other examples, I don't know, Attack on Titan, you know, you've got the the crying, screaming protagonist, at least at the first few episodes, I, I fell <laughs> off fairly quickly. Um, it was, yeah. And, and and that seems like a pretty common trope, and I hate that. Uh, well, it got, it got, <laughs> it got flanderized, I guess, o- over time. Fair enough. Where it, yeah. And then, and then Death Note, you know, he, he was with great power, comes great responsibility all the way, right? right? Yeah, he was definitely much more of the uh, Marvel style. Yeah, the power comes first thing. In in only that exact way, <laughs> right? <laughs> he did it to become the best supervillain he possibly could be. Yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, go ahead and uh, grab some more of these. Uh, you pulled out some of the quotes, but I've I was basically going to pull out everything he did. So he goes back to the saving four hundred lives with certainty versus saving five hundred lives with ninety percent probability. And no lives with 10%. We talked about that the last several episodes. He, he comes back to this and says, you know, people, a lot of people may be tempted to grandstand saying, how dare you gamble with people's lives? Obviously go with the 400 lives with certainty. You can't take a 10% probability that 500 people are going to die. But when you're actually making this decision and you don't know what's going to happen, maybe your daughter is one of those 500 people. If you don't know what the actual outcomes are going to be, and your daughter's life is on the line, maybe then you feel a bit impelled to shut up and multiply and notice that you have an 80% chance of saving her in the first case and a 90% chance of saving her in the second. Because in the first case, you save 400 lives and the other 100 are gone. When you have your daughter to protect, then suddenly you actually care that there's a 10% greater chance that she's going to live. I I love this because this actually really perfectly drives home. Intellectually, it makes perfect sense, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the math says 450 on average, uh, as opposed to 400 for sure. It, but the second he says, but if your precious daughter is one of the 500, then it's like, oh, shit. Suddenly, it could be a 10% chance to save them. Now that I'm imagining a strong emotional connection to the actual outcome rather than just, you know, numbers on a, on a chalkboard, then it's like, y- viscerally, I, I need to know which one's the better choice. And I'm totally going to do it, right? Yeah. And that is basically his entire point through this post is that when you actually really fucking care about the outcome, 
then you stop becoming attached to, I have to support this position for whatever reason. And you become insanely attached to, I need to know which position is the better position. And I believe uh, Julia Galef calls that the difference between, between the soldier mindset and the scout mindset. When the results really matter, what you care about is knowing what's the better course of action to get the results you want, rather than just what is the argument that I'm supposed to support. And that is why he says having something to protect is the only way to to truly be a rationalist, because otherwise there's just so much drive as a human to sometimes support certain arguments or to be lazy and fall back to heuristics that everyone else is using when suddenly it's really important, like then all of a sudden you have a huge motivation to really get down and find out the correct answer. That is the whole gist behind this. That is what you need to drive yourself to actually find Bayesianism and apply it correctly, rigorously, and often. I agree. I don't want to belabor on it too long other than just to consider the possibility that one might find compelling reasons to lean in more into soldier mindset than scout mindset if you have something important to protect going on. Because that thing might be more important to you than, you know, an honest evaluation of the evidence or something, right? Let's say it was 80% probability of saving 500 lives Mm -hmm. instead of 90. Oh, wait, then the outcomes are the same, aren't they? Let's say it's 70 or 50. You don't care because it's your daughter. You might bolster your your case with, and this this is why soldiering is kind of uh, dangerous when trying to be a good rationalist, but you might bolster your case with saying, look, you might grandstand and say, it's more lives. How could you, how could you condemn them to death? You know, yada, yada. You might make all the bad arguments in favor of choosing the lower likely outcome because one person in there is someone you really care about. And frankly, that's totally Wait, something if you're I would choosing, do. I'm, choosing, uh, I'm imagining two different pools of people, I should say. No, no, no. The whole point is that there's only the one pool of people. All right. Well, in my hypothetical, there's two. Then that's the wrong hypothetical, because obviously, if what you really care about is the daughter, then you choose whichever one lets you save your daughter. That's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, but that, but if that's you're not the case here, but if you're but if like, you're just the boat captain choosing how how to exercise all the resources of like life rafts and stuff or whatever, right? And you're making this real life mm-hmm. decision, and you don't know anyone else on board; they're all just customers. You're going to go with the one that saves the probabilistically max number of lives. Well, if one of them is your daughter, but you don't know which one then you go for the probabilistically max number of lives. Yeah, That's why if you have the 500 lives and it's a 50-50 probability, then you would go with the 400 lives with certainty because that saves more lives in expectation and thus maximizes the chance of your daughter being saved. Maybe I illustrated my point poorly and too strongly because it's so, it was so absurd that or like so so poorly <laughs> rational that you had to jump in. My point is, is that you might use arguments to support your bad position because you really care about the outcome that you're choosing. Right. So that, that's then, that's why I say that soldier soldier mindset might be uh, risky there or rather no. it, it's great for you, but it's risky in general for trying to do like the most actual good. Right. Yes, that's the point. You aren't trying to do the most actual good. You're trying to maximize your outcome. Right. And your outcome is fuck everyone else. I care about my daughter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that is what he is saying. When you have a goal you really want, when you have something you actually want to protect, you will use rationality to achieve that goal. You're assuming that for some reason his goal is to save the maximum number of people, and that is not the case at all. His goal is to save his daughter. Right. I should make up an entirely different hypothetical. I guess my point is is that you might use rationality to reasonably resort to making bad arguments that sound compelling to convince people to do the thing that you really care about instead of the thing that would best interest them because you really want your daughter to live or something, right? Yes. That is, again, using rationality if that is going to achieve your goal. Oh, okay. I guess I would consider that more 
uh, if you're knowingly making bad arguments to persuade people to do the thing that is in their worst interest, but is in your best interest, I wouldn't consider that ideal rationality, more like the dark side rationality stuff. Yeah, um, that's dark arts rationality. And as a society, we want to discourage people from doing that because of the reason we want to discourage anyone from doing antisocial stuff. But uh, the whole point is that if you were truly exercising rationality, you would do the thing that maximizes your outcome. Yeah, no, I, I, I get you. I feel like I belabored on that too long. And maybe I, did, I didn't articulate my thought all the way beforehand. I feel like I... Mm, I mean, I, I think that you gave a very good example of how you would, if you had something to protect, look for things that actually get you your goal, as opposed to just following nice rules. Yeah, it would change your orientation to the problem, uh, yeah. which is like, it, yeah, it, just totally legit, or rather, which makes sense. I guess I, I mean, we're getting into the case where what we're trying to do is align people's individual goals with society's broader goals. But that's different from why would you use rationality in the first place? Yeah, no, totally fair. I feel like I had a point that I failed to make and now I'm struggling to remember. So let's push past it. Steven, thank you for joining me again one last time. We talked past each other a little bit because the post is about instrumental rationality, like how to get what you want in a particular situation. When you want something, rationality is one of the premier tools for figuring out how to actually get that. It's the uh, premier tool, sir. I Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly definitely in the tool bucket on the very top shelf. Tool bucket? They have shelves, well, yeah? And, and it's, yeah, I mean, of course your buckets have shelves, but it's it's <laughs> it's also the tool that tells you which other tools to go get. Exactly. Then we started talking about what if it's rational to kill 100 people to save your daughter or poison the beliefs of the people around you. In my mind, when I was editing, uh, it reminded me of the whole problem with FTX where Sam Bankman-Fried <laughs> is like, well, you know what? Uh, I want billions of dollars right now so I can direct them to the best use that they could have. So I'm going to just scam thousands of people out of all their money so that I can use it for what I think is best. Uh, so that's super rational, right? It is not, as we covered in the episode on that, primarily because the world still exists after you've done that, <laughs> and you have destroyed many things doing that. Maybe sometimes for you personally, it might behoove you to do something like that if what you really care about is saving your daughter, even if it means that they're going to string you up and slowly torture you to death for what you did. But in terms of general ethics, the study of how to all get along together and to get other people to do things that are good for ourselves and each other that is not a rational thing to do because you are going to be burning the commons, destroying the ability for people to cooperate, and in general, making the world much worse overall. So I think that is where we had the major disconnect, that it is might be rational in one particular instance to do something like that, but it is not rational overall to use that as a, as a guiding principle of, I just do whatever I need to get what I want, because that actually has much worse effects in the long run. I totally agree. I think I, I made that whole section. I don't know how much you cleaned up, but it, it was way less coherent than it was in my head. And like the short version of what I was trying to say was that in certain circumstances, it's rational to use dark side epistemology uh, mm -hmm. because you, you have goals that you care about more than the truth. Your goal is save this person or whatever. It's but in it's, the long run, it's, it's always bad. Right. It's never rational to defect. Uh, well, I mean, so this this is where if you have something to protect that is more important to you than the comments. Like there was that really cool movie, shoot, John Q. I can't remember what it was called. Uh, I think it was started. Oh, Denzel yeah, Washington. He, uh, he takes a yeah. he takes a hospital hostage because his son needs a new heart, and it's awesome. I I think I saw it probably when it came out fifteen years ago. It's not a spoiler. I think he goes to jail at the end, which makes sense. You know, he yes. put he put a gun to people's head, and yeah, 
I think that you're supposed to leave the movie feeling like, you know, that guy's awesome. It sucks that he had to do that, but it's like, yes, I'm willing to violate, you know, like if, if you carry your kid to the hospital with a broken bone or whatever, you don't expect the doctors to drop everyone else and rush to your kid, even though you would like them to, because you realize how insane that would be. Um, I mean, the game theoretic correct action for the rest of society after he's done that is to take the heart back out of the kid, because otherwise <laughs> people are going to be incentivized to do this. I mean, yes, I makes one wonder what they would do on Dothalon, although I don't suppose that that circumstance would arise there, but there's something that insane <laughs> maybe did. That, maybe that's what the surreptitious head removers are for. <laughs> could well be it. Well, I, I appreciate the clarification and the ability to to uh, more succinctly deliver what I was trying to say. Okay. Once you have something you really want, you start using all your tools to get to that thing, whether that includes lying to people or not. Um, that, actually, and- that actually might be the point that I was trying to make. Maybe I shouldn't have gone on the whole tangent about soldier and scout mindset. You know, you care about rationality, you care about the truth, being honest and being a, a fair person, whatever, right up until something more than your life is at stake. Then you're like, okay, yeah, well, now I'm actually going to, I'm going to try and get it done no matter what. Even if I have to lie, to it, kill, and steal, right? And to get it done no matter what, you want the best tools that you can possibly get your hands on, right? Right. And that is why you would use rationality. Once you really fucking care to that degree, you're like, this is the best tool for the job. And the best tool for the job is thinking about things rationally and multiplying the numbers and seeing where your greatest chance of success lies. Yes. Well put. All right. Eliezer does go on to say, do not mistake me and think I am advocating that rationalists should pick out a nice altruistic cause by way of having something to do because rationality isn't all that important by itself. No one can just pick out a cause like that because you feel you need a hobby. Go looking for a good cause and your mind will just fill in the standard cliches. Stephen, should I should I even draw in the obvious EA parallel, seeing as that we've just been talking about recently? I think it can be explained in under a minute, which is that your average EA will look to the community and say, hey, what's the most important cause? Because I care and do that. But what, what they're doing there is different than trying to... It, it, they're not, I like the line in here that no one masters the way until more than their life is at stake. Yeah. Your average EA isn't somebody who's in that circumstance. So I, I see I how it relates, but it's not quite the same. The people who are looking for the cure to something tremendous, you know, like the ones maybe who are doing the, the intense research might mm-hmm. be closer to the ones who are driven this way, right? I don't want to say that, that the average EA is like that. I think most people are strongly driven to try to help the world and to save lives. But if I were to try to do that kind of thing, I feel like I would be doing the sort of picking a cause thing as opposed to really actually caring about something that is intensely important to me. Oh, see, I didn't even I know. Does I, that I, make me super selfish? No, no, no. I think it makes it makes you better at this sort of thing than I am. I, I did the lazy third option, which is I checked the box on GiveWell's website of give this money to the cause that you think needs it most right now. So like I, I didn't check bed nets or give directly or whatever. I checked the box that says you guys spend it to wherever it needs or wherever it's needed. You guys do the thinking. I don't care. I think that is the correct thing to do for most people. And since we were just talking about aligning personal incentives with social incentives, the whole thing that we've done where there is pressure by society to get everyone to give 10% to an effective cause, it's basically a good thing. It's doing this whole aligning social incentives with personal incentives thing. That is not a thing that drives you to adopt rationality and to use it relentlessly in your life. Because, yeah, you don't have that driving, burning passion. You have social pressure. And that's good. But it's not having something to protect in in caps, like this pointed out in this post. Yeah, that's why EA and rationality have an overlapping Venn diagram, but aren't one to one. Yeah, yeah. 
No, and I think a lot of the people who work directly in EA are the ones that do have a more burning drive like that. Totally. Maybe I'm simple minding. Maybe the average, you know, EA puts in more work than I did, but I'm going off of myself there. So I almost feel like there's like there's a member in good standing in uh, in the laity, you know, if you're giving your 10% and you're being as effective as you can be. And then there's like the cleric class who actually are driven and do the work and research to see what's the best and are constantly updating their models and their quality adjusted dollars per life saved thing. I think you're right. And, and we use the term EA for both of them, but they feel like slightly different things. I think uh, this is nicely related to, you know, we use Bayesianism for two different things, right? Yeah, yeah. All right. It kind of comes full circle. You know, I well, maybe he, maybe you have like an EA, I don't want to actually give them quick labels because I feel like it needs more deliberation. I was going to say you have like participants and forerunners or something, right? Hmm. And I'm much more like the back of the participant line than I am in the forerunner line. right. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Not me either. He does end by saying, but if you have a cause like that, it is right and proper to wield your rationality in its service, which is fantastic. Yeah. That is what rationality is for. I agree. For our next episode, we will be covering the less wrong posts, uh, three of them this time, Newcomb's problem and regret of rationality, that is one, the parable of the dagger as two, and the parable of hemlock as three. Heck yeah. All right. This episode's glorious patron shout-out goes out to Bowen K. Total badass. We appreciate you. Bowen, thank you so much. You help make this a thing that we want to keep doing, I guess. that's That came out wrong. <laughs> no, that's it's also true. But you, you help bring this to people. You, you keep the lights on around here. And uh, we appreciate it. We appreciate you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You are a scholar and a gentleman. And you help to fund the things that are not funded by the bureaucracies well because done. we don't have any credentials <laughs> let's, let's end on a high note <laughs> <All right. laughs> we'll see you in a couple weeks bye